Lots to talk about today. Hey, folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. Um, there is indeed a whole lot to today's podcast. Uh, I've been wanting to have the creators of Cheers on the show for a long time. And even after I met them, I'm very shy about asking them to be on the show, but I'm glad I finally did. They were lovely guys. And you'll hear that interview soon, as well as uh, excerpts from the Cheers reunion that we put on uh, in 2021 over Zoom during lockdown. Uh, it was an incredible time. Um, and I'll talk about that in a moment. I'll try to keep my stuff brief today. We're on strike. The feeling of unity and the electricity out on the strike lines is incredible. Um, I've been writing a lot about it over on the newsletter, benblacker.substack.com. Please go over and check that out. If you like this podcast, if you want to support this podcast, we are now 100% independent. So the best way to do that is to go over to the newsletter and become a paid subscriber, benblacker.substack.com. Uh, you'll get weekly newsletters uh, as well as access to our monthly Q&As with professional writers. So I highly recommend that for you know new writers, pre-WGA writers, and WGA writers. Like There's always so much good stuff that comes out of those conversations. Um, you also get other cool stuff, uh, meetups, who knows what else, <laughs> other stuff. I don't remember. Uh, before we get into today's episode, um, I just had this terrific conversation with Adam Conover. Uh, Adam, of course, you know from his show, Adam Ruins Everything. Um, he also has a new show on Netflix called The G Word with Adam Conover. Um, and he, of course, is on our board, our WGA board, and was on the WGA contract negotiating committee. Uh, Adam has been front and center in communicating why exactly we are striking and getting great information across to members as well as to, you know, the people of the world. Uh, he's really good at this stuff. Uh, having folks like him on the negotiating committee makes you know that we are in really good hands. So here is a brief chat that I had with Adam, um, which I think is really illuminating in a lot of ways. But here's uh, Adam Conover. Union song, union battle, all at it all. Want us all what we got now. Union song, union battle, all at it up. Want us all what we got now. I can't even stop to look around me here. Adam Conover, thanks for talking. Uh, I know you are very busy right now. <laughs> a little bit. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's, I mean, I'm busy with communicating about what we're doing. So this is part of that. The communication from the Guild has been so good. Uh, just like, not just these past few weeks, but the past year. I'm so happy. I'm so happy you feel that way. Tell me how things are right now. How is your, how is your brain? How are you personally? And how are things on the front lines? Look, I, I think all of us are still running on adrenaline, you know, every single day I head out on the picket line. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm so excited to be there. Like it's, it's really hard not to just be thinking about this and doing this 24 uh, seven. I had to leave town for a couple days and it was, it was hard to tear myself away from LA, you know, cause my mind is just there. I'm like, 
you know, communicating with folks on the picket line, um, constantly, uh, you know, taking on uh, whatever needs to be done. You know, all those of us in leadership are just constantly jumping in and doing it. Um, in terms of how morale is, I mean, uh, everything is going incredibly, I, I have to say. Uh, the, the solidarity on the picket line is huge. The solidarity with our, with our fellow unions is incredible and unprecedented. Um, and the unity among Guild members is, is really palpable. Uh, and, you know, I, I think our main concern is we have to be in it for the long haul. You know, Chris Kaiser said in our big rally at the uh, at the shrine that, you know, this is going to be a battle of endurance that we all know that. And we just need to remember that pace ourselves. You know, we got great energy out there right now, but we have to make sure we have energy all through the summer, you know, and as long as it takes. I wanted to, to chat with you about a couple of things that um, conversations I've been having questions that have come up on the picket line. Um, yeah, please. Anything. One of which was, you know, I think we we really trust our leadership and, and you all have earned that trust for sure and shown us that you are folks to be trusted. It feels like you understand absolutely the things that we are going through, you know, because you are us. Um, who are the strategists? Who are the what is their background? Like who is weighing in on decisions? Sure. Well, decisions are made. Uh, through you know a really collaborative process of everybody in leadership and that means both the board and the negotiating committee and our staff um, and frankly in consultation with membership when we have our big meetings right and people get up on the microphone and they make their comments we listen to those and adjust accordingly like those are true listening sessions um, and that's why we go to, that's why you know you can go to you could have gone to you know a dozen meetings this year and seen the entire leadership there because uh, like we 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 are really taking the membership's input really importantly moment to moment. Um, you know, strategy of course is led by Alan Stutzman, who's our chief negotiator, and Chris Kaiser and David Goodman, who are the co-chairs of the negotiating committee, and then our officers. Um, and you know, Ellen, I, I mean, I don't think she needs any introduction. She's been at the guild, you know, since. Uh, I, I believe the number is 17 years, something along those lines. Um, and nobody knows, uh, you know, the contract better and, and the trends better. Um, but, you know, I can't emphasize enough how strategic, uh, sorry, how collaborative the strategic process is and, and how it's, you know, it's changed over time. Like we, uh, our strategy is, uh, you know, updated by events moment to moment, you know? Yeah, I think that's the thing that that we're all sort of latching onto. And, and again, the communication has been so good about even in this, the minutia of telling us where to go and where bodies are needed. And, you know, that's like, we want to know that because we all, I think, just want to help make a difference for ourselves and the writers coming up, you know. Another thing uh, I wanted to talk about is some of the messaging, which I think has been terrific. Um, I think, you know, the, the proposals and responses that you put out, obviously folks are still talking about that. Um, I want to talk for a second just personally, like, what was it like being in that room and getting these non-responses? You know, it it's honestly so boring of a process that sometimes you forget to have an emotional reaction, you know? So, so to give you a little bit of a picture of it, um, we have our caucus room where we spend all day, uh, you know, and, and some of the time we spend in discussion, some of the time we spend, uh, like literally just hanging out and chatting because we're waiting for them to, you know, come back to us with a response. And then we go into the negotiating room and we're just across the table from Carol and all the various lawyers and, and labor folks from the companies. 
Um, and when we go in there, it's very scripted. We know, okay, they're going to present or we're going to present. We know exactly who's going to talk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, so when it's, it, but it's very, very banal, you know, it's like being at, a, at any kind of boring meeting where someone's reading off a sheet of paper. Oh, do we have that printout? No. Okay. Sorry, everyone. We have to, we have to wait. We have to wait for the print. The printer's slow. Okay. How was lunch? Like literally there's moments like that. Then they bring in the printout, they read off of it, you know, and part of what we do is we have no emotional reaction to what they read off because we don't want to reveal how we feel about things. Um, but you know the so so it's tamped down in that in that regard. But you know when they just say on this proposal we reject the proposal, you know that's all they say, and there's no use in getting mad. And in many cases we know what they're going to reject in in that way because it's something oh we've rejected this many times. Occasionally Carol throws in a an insult or two to rile people up, and you've heard what those are. Chris has repeated those. Um, but you know look they're 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 in many ways an immovable object you know you go up and you you take your swings at them and you know that they're just going to say no and you're ready for that and then we go back in the caucus room and we and we say well it's kind of what we expected in this case you know so it, it's uh, our camaraderie between the negotiating committee members really makes up for you know any sort of of downtroddenness you might feel when they when they say no time and time again but at the same time you know when we're presenting uh, a, a zero cost proposal that's going to change the lives of screenwriters, right? To be paid weekly rather than at the end when there's, there's no reason, you know, we've presented, this is the free work problem. This is why this proposal would fix the free work problem. It costs you nothing. The people who work for you are begging for this. And then they literally just reply with, we reject this proposal. And that's all that they say. And you go back. It's hard to get, it's hard not to get a little mad, right? Uh, uh, especially, you know, when you see the, the folks who are representing screenwriters on the negotiating committee and the looks on their faces, you know, it's, it is really frustrating. But the thing is, we know that we're never going to make that progress in the negotiating room. It's not about going in and yelling at Carol or getting mad or making a better argument in any way, because the people in that room aren't the ones who can make the decision, because the people in that room were given a very specific remit by the companies, get us out of there with a 2%, 3% total increase or whatever and we are asking for a structural change to the business and so we sort of know the only people who can make that decision are the ceos and what we're trying to do now on the picket line is use our collective power to make those ceos come down from the towers and actually bargain with us so you know at the end of the day you're like ah there's you know carol and her buddy from netflix and whatever these are the decision makers you know so when they when they're mean ah, you get a little frustrated but you know what we have to do next you know and and so we try to take that long view um as best we can but also we do have some st strategic and empathetic anger when it calls for it <laughs> clearly which we appreciate um and and this idea of the amptp as an immovable object i think is one that has a lot of people discouraged, like, where do you find hope in facing a potentially immovable object? And where can we find hope? So let me tell you something. And I'm going to say this very clearly. And if I'm wrong about it, you can come for my head in a year or two. Okay. But we're going to fucking 
beat them. We're gonna win. Like I have never been confident, more confident about anything in my entire life. And that's because we've done the power analysis. We know that they need us. And we know that the issues we're fighting for are so important to our membership that our membership is more united than it has ever been. And I know that we are gonna stay on those picket lines as long as we have to. We, it, we beat the agents and it took almost two years and we stuck together and we forced them to make material changes to their businesses. They sold their production arms, they eliminated the conflicts of interest that they had built their businesses around and they did it because 10,000 writers stuck together, okay? And this time, you can feel the solidarity is even higher, right? You, 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 I'm sure you feel it. I'm sure everyone listening feels it. So there, there's no chance that, that we're going to come out with anything less than a victory. Um, I forgot your question, but that was... <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, but that, but that, I mean, you, it sounds like you have this hope and, and, oh yeah, to hear you talk, especially, you know, I've, I've listened to other interviews with you and a lot of the negotiating committee and the board members and like, all of you are so certain, which helps give us certainty for sure. I mean, uh, look, it, it's once you really do the power analysis and you walk through it, it, it can't go any other way. We make the only product these companies sell. And they like to forget that. But after Ted goes for, you know, a, a couple months maybe without getting to schedule a new Stranger Things, the one time a year that that's his Super Bowl. That's when he makes all of his subscribers. That's when they're in the black, you know. Um, uh, and every other company is facing a similar decision. And they remember, oh, wait, these are the people who make our only product. You know, there's there's no other way that this ends. Um, now, look, that doesn't mean there aren't going to be difficult times. There are, you know, there are going to be, there are going to be trying times. And, you know, as Chris Kaiser often says, it's a burden that's born unequally. And some people are going to bear a harder burden, burden than others. All that stuff is really real. But, uh, you know, this is, this is how we've won every victory we ever have as a guild. It's the only reason we have healthcare and pensions, the only reason we have residuals. And, it's going to work again. The reason I call the AMPTP an, uh, uh, an immovable object is they're an organization whose only purpose is to say no. They sit in that room and they negotiate, I believe it's 55 contracts a year, 55 groups of people like us come in every single year to this mall in Sherman Oaks and into this boardroom at the Sherman Oaks Galleria. And Carol's entire job is to go, we reject your proposal. That's it. That's all she does. And we are the guild that has the strategy to get around that no, to say, okay, Carol said no, we're calling the fucking managers, right? We're escalating this because we're going to withhold our labor. And that's going to work um, because of the kind of union this is and the kind of power that writers wield. It absolutely makes sense. Um, but let me follow up and ask, like, what about these companies that Film and TV is not the only product they sell. What about Amazon? What about Apple? Like, should that be a different kind of concern? So, look, the uh, I don't have any inside information on the divisions between the companies because in, in the room they, they present a united front. But I think it can only be good for us that the companies are more heterogeneous than they were in the past. In 2007, it was these legacy media companies who had been going up against the guild for years. And they were like, they, they looked at 2007 as a chance to break the unions. Because if we have this whole new sector with no coverage and that becomes dominant, then the unions will become a thing of the past. And we, it was an existential battle for us and for them. Okay. What we're fighting right now is not an existential battle for all these companies equally. Maybe some of them want to break the unions, but like, 
j- just to speculate, if you're fucking Eddie Q, who works for Apple and leads their their media department, and suddenly there's headlines because your Emmy winning like most popular show Severance can no longer shoot and you're having to explain to tim cook hey there's this there's this lady named carol lombardini and she runs this organization called the amptp which we which we joined just like three years ago because because you know we all the labor lawyers told us we had to because that's how you do your labor but we don't know this lady i just talked to her myself a year ago like what the fuck is you know like does he maybe think about it a little bit differently than ted sarandos and does he think about it a little bit more differently than you know some of the old head media execs who've been around a little bit longer you know and do do divisions between them start emerging i think maybe you know Uh, i can't make any predictions across that front and i also by the way have no reason to think maybe apple will take the exact opposite tack right but i do think there's a difference where they go really hard against the people who unionize their Apple stores or their warehouses, right? Or the people who make the phones. But we're not that business to them. They're a hardware selling business. We're the product, you know? We're, we're, the, we're the NBA players, you know what I mean? We're the people who, we're the people who are, are most valuable to them. And, you know, for a company like Apple that, you know, uh, clearly loves talent, if you look at the decisions they make, like they're sort of obsessed with high tier talent. Are, are they going to say, why are we picking this fight? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, again, speculating. Um, it's it's a good answer, though. And it's, it's a version of that argument that I hadn't really encountered before. There, there's when you hear arguments like that, right? You hear people say, what about Amazon? They don't care about us, right? They're, they're a big company. There's a way to make that argument that is, it, it can cut either way, you know, and you kind of have the choice about whether you're only going to listen to speculative arguments that convince you we have no value and we're going to lose or if you look at the actual power you know relationships and you know come to a a little bit more of an optimistic conclusion which is what i have and what i think most of our members have something else i wanted to touch on is part of the messaging um from the guild and and you know this is about the expectations of the executives that we work with day to day you know who mostly like we have relationships with we like these folks for the most part um, these development executives who I keep hearing from writers on the line, but also from executive friends saying, my colleagues expect when this strike is over that they're going to have the work that is owed to them from before the strike delivered day one. Oh, really? People are people are saying this? Yeah, people are saying this. And that has me concerned that like they're not quite understanding the point of this. Yeah. I mean, I would say, first of all, that's an MBA violation because you can't expect work for somebody who's from somebody who's not being paid. I mean, uh, okay, uh, so that to me sounds like demand, right? What you're saying to me sounds like they need us. Any any delay is disastrous to them. And when the strike is over, they're going to say, grab your pencils. We need as much work as possible right away. Sounds good to me. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not worried about the creative executives, um, by the way taking out some kind of retribution on us because in my experience just the creative executives I've worked with these are the these are some of the only people in town who understand what we do because they're the only people in town who some of them hire writers right and they've had the experience of hiring a, a bad writer or or not having a, a writer who worked out and needing a different writer and you know they, they understand the work product as opposed to some of the CEOs who are just like ah oh, these people just shit out the words right um, I think if you if you're in the position of you know bringing people on, uh, 
uh, and needing a particular piece of writing and needing writers, you really, I've, I've worked with people who like, their entire job is just hiring the right writer, you know? And uh, those people are gonna need us very badly. I also think that these are often some of the most abused and overworked executives in Hollywood. Whenever I talk to somebody in Netflix, I've talked worked with many executives on Netflix, they're all terrified, right? You talk to these people, they haven't slept, they just got out of a meeting where they were yelled at because the one number that determines whether or not they'll be hired or fired like dipped a little bit this quarter, you know? Like these people are taking their orders from an algorithm and they're all terrified because nobody knows the difference between success and failure. Um, a lot of these companies just went through huge rounds of merger and layoff. Um, and I, I have to think that some of them are in those buildings going like, this business fucking sucks right now. And this is the one group of people, the writers who I work with are the one group of people who are trying to fix things. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there's some assholes out there who feel opposite, but I guarantee you there's some people in those buildings who feel that way. Um, and that, that's something I think about when I'm on the picket line looking up at the Netflix offices. Yeah, it, it, I think part of, you know, why we're getting so much interunion uh, support is so many of us feel this way. Anyone who's not at the top feels like this system is broken. A friend who works at uh, one of the companies said, how can I help without getting fired? <laughs> uh you know, I think that uh, the more internal pushback there is on these companies, the better. Like, you know, these executives have the ability to say to business affairs, to their labor departments, what the hell is going on? You know, and I have heard of executives having that conversation. Uh, you know, why? When you look at what the AMPTP refused to bargain about, some of the things are baffling and, and un inexplicable, right? Uh, such as our zero cost proposals to protect screenwriters or AI, right? Like their AI, their lack of, of uh, the, the refusal to bargain on AI was completely inflaming. And it actually caused a, a large part of the negotiation to now be about AI, where it, we had previously thought it was a little bit of a sideshow. We thought we were covering our bases, but they refused so directly that it was, could, it was chilling. You know, it was chilling to the membership. And so, like, if you're a creative executive and you're inside one of these companies and you, 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 do you want to be giving notes on chat GPT? Is this what you actually want to do? You know, like, is, are you, do you trust that the people who run your company are like actually have like something that's good for the industry in mind? Just bring that up. You know, you've got power. These people have power in these meetings. There, there's going to be all, all hands meetings in these companies. And like, it's fine for the to people to dis, for people to disagree in that context, um, and then you know the other thing I'll always do is shout out the Entertainment Community Fund, which you know anybody listening anybody can donate to, and if you go under film and film and television when you make your donation, that goes to benefit uh, among other people, folks who are affected by our, our strike who aren't Writers Guild members, and uh, that's like I just always like to shout that out. They do incredible work, and um, you know writer support for them has been really really huge and, and a, a big part of demonstrating our solidarity. Absolutely. Um, and that is, I think, where most of us are, are sort of sending, especially the pre-WGA writers who are coming and saying, how can I support? How can I help? And that is your first stop. Uh, what is What else can they do? Uh, you know, a lot of pre-WGA writers are listeners to this podcast and they want yeah. to show their support. How can they help? I mean, the, the support on the picket lines has been really massive. Like, you know, assuming that, look, when people go you know, treat it, treat it respectfully, listen to the captains, you know, um, 
Uh, don't mill about, <laughs> right, and clog up the sidewalk. Be actually marching. Ask what needs to be done. You know, if you see a gate that doesn't have enough people on it, go to that gate. You know, we all have a tendency to go, oh, I want to go to the popular gate <laughs> where everybody is. But no, go to the one that needs the bodies, you know. Um, that that's that's actually very helpful. You know, some of our some of our West Side lots have have less people. I think because a lot of our more excited, ready to march, uh, angriest members live on the East Side because they that's where they rent. <laughs> you know, they they don't have the big place on near the Fox lot anymore. But so if you head out there and and you know can go across town and pick it, uh, that's that's a, that's a huge amount of support. It really is. Um, and then of course the solidarity of just not working right now you know that uh uh you know not not pitching not writing not uh you know working with the companies in any way that's really important it's material solidarity that that uh, uh so-called pre-wga folks can use yeah i think that's great thank you so much adam um i feel like we're gonna have lots to talk about in in the coming months uh but i thank you for stopping by absolutely and just folks please keep coming out Put yourself on a schedule, okay? If you can't go every day, don't stress about it. But put yourself on a schedule so we get you there every week as long as it takes. You know what I mean? Just treat it like you're signing up for a new gym membership. You know what I mean? And, and put it on your schedule as you live your life um, because uh, it, it, really does, uh, it really does mean a lot. Thank you so much, Ben. You need song. You need battle. i it up. What is all what we got now? Union song, union battle. I'll add it up. What is all what we got now? I can't even start to look around me here. All right. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that in 2020, pretty much within the first month of lockdown, my wife and I started an online theater called HouseSeats.Live. And through that theater, we raised over a million dollars for charity by doing about 75 shows over the course of 2020 and early 2021. Um, these shows were incredibly fun. It was everything from a Mr. Show reunion to a Wet Hot American Summer reunion. Uh, we did a read of uh, a Ben Stiller script that he had written, um, I think, 25 years ago or something, which had an incredible cast, uh, including Henry Winkler and Don Cheadle. And just, it was just bananas. Um, so we did 75 shows. Among those uh, was a show called Ted Danson and His Friends from Work. And this show was created by me, my wife, and our friend Mark Evan Jackson, uh, whom you know from The Good Place and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Babysitter's Club. Mark hosted the show, and it was really just a series of reunions over the course of, I want to say, about three hours with casts that Ted had been a part of. Um, Ted Danson is an absolute delight. Uh, we started with a three men and a baby reunion um, with everyone but the baby. Uh, Tom Selleck, Steve Gutenberg, and Ted, and it was terrific. And, you know, we did a Good Place reunion. We had the cast of his then-show, Mr. Mayor, on, which was created by Tina Fey, whom you'll hear from in a moment. Um, and the night ended with a Cheers reunion, and this is when I first met the creators of Cheers, as well as all of the cast. Everybody came out for Ted, which was so sweet. So... We had um, a couple of the previous guests from that night ask questions 
Uh, Darcy Carden asked a question as the biggest Cheers fan I know uh, outside of this household. And um, Tina Fey asked a question about the Cheers pilot, which I am going to bring you in a moment. Um, I was just going to play that clip of Tina asking the question and the answer that the Charles brothers and James Burroughs gave. But as I was listening to it, the conversation was so much fun. And it's so clear how much this cast loves each other. Um, They are like family, the kind of family that can only come after 11 years of working together and 300 episodes of working together. Um, So this is a somewhat longer clip from that night. Uh, it's about 20 minutes long, I believe, and you'll hear, you know, you'll hear the the Cheers actors that you know and love. Uh, their voices are unmistakable. Um, Ted Danson, the late Kirstie Alley, who was a delight and so funny. Um, Kelsey Grammer, B.B. Newworth, John Ratzenberger, George Went, they're all in here. Um, Rhea Perlman, it's, it's really... So much fun. The entire thing was probably about 45 minutes uh, and was about a third of the night um, uh, for the Ted Danson show. But even hearing Ted talk to these old friends of his, um, you just get a feel for how much they all care for each other. Um, You know, the best case scenario when you're working on a television show is it, it becomes a family. And they clearly are. So I'm going to start here by by bringing you this clip from Ted Danson and his friends from work from 2020. Um, the first voice you'll hear is Tina Fey's, and then you'll hear um, Glenn and Les Charles answering the question. And then uh, I'll meet you back here afterwards. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. My question is actually for 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 Glenn and Les, which is about the pilot of Cheers, which is, you know, regarded as the most perfect pilot script ever written. It's like a play. It's perfect. And I just would like to know, you know, did it was it one of those things that it just came out quick and easy or did it go through a lot of rewriting process? Did it change when you found the cast? Tell me about how that pilot came to be so perfect. First of all, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Tim. Second, that's an enormous compliment. Uh, yeah, indeed. Um, our pilot was essentially an audition. Uh, we weren't on the air. Uh, we hadn't sold anything yet. They wanted to see what the, what we had in mind. So our first job, we thought, was uh, because it's a television show and we'd worked in television, is to introduce the characters, make sure in the first episode people meet the characters and laugh at them. And I think was a mistake a lot of uh, pilot writers make is trying to overwhelm people with laughs right at the beginning. And we thought we'd go the other way around, uh, introduce the characters, and then let the, let the humor ensue, uh, one would hope, uh, afterwards. Uh, but uh, we were extremely lucky because we had just absolute right on people come in and read for every part and they kind of led us in the right direction. Um, so we were helped in that regard. And maybe this is the most important. We were dealing with a network NBC at the time, which was there were only three, 
three shows in town that in that in those days. Uh, they were number three, and so they kind of had to take what we offered. But we had uh, we they could have turned us down and said go do another one, uh, but they didn't. And I think it was, I think it's we just all clicked. When I say all, I mean uh, Jimmy, the the cast, everybody clicked uh, with that one show. And I, again, we concentrated on on interesting the characters and and the story, and. Uh, seem to come in line and we we started out with things that make us laugh um, that's always the way well you know you guys are what what the young people call the goat the greatest of all time oh, God. <laughs> honor to be i've been called a goat but I... <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting smoked ted i see it it feels good <laughs> yeah <doesn't> it? <laughs> that uh, that thank you tina. tina thank very you. cool thank you so much very very nice um, I'm curious to know, as is the internet about, uh, from all of you, and this is a question for a moment from now, uh, favorite uh, scene partners, uh, the, the hardest to not break with and the most fun to work with. Um, it, first though, Kelsey, I'm curious about your trajectory through this, uh, presumably starting as more recurring. And then uh, for all of you, did you know that you would be seeing a lot more of Fraser Crane? Oh, well, well for me, um... It was a seven show commitment uh, that, you know, uh, the, the first show I was in was in the third season, the beginning of the third season, I guess, as a sort of device to break the, the two leads up. You guys have written yourselves into a bit of a corner. That's what I was told. And then uh, I got some sides in New York City where I was doing uh, Sunday in the Park with George and I uh, was understudying um, um, Hurley Burley at the time. And... Uh, so I read these sides and they said, don't tell anyone. It was like sort of some sort of uh, corporate uh, espionage at, the, at the, the risk of being, you know, killed for <laughs> sort of trade secrets. So I, I read them and I thought, oh, this guy's, I know who this guy is. I can play him. And uh, I went in and we did this uh, personality thing. Some, they call it a personality video, whatever, screening or something. And so I... Um, Gretchen Rinalis sat me down in front of a, a video camera and asked me a couple of questions and I sort of spitballed a little bit and I wore my, my Christian Dior silk-lined yellow golfing slacks because I thought they'd be appropriate for Frazier. <laughs> and uh, um, this, this, this guy had seen me would wear those kind of pants and that's, that was my key. And then, then, I, then I flew out to LA and, and, and read and um, I actually thought I didn't get the part, so I, I put the script down on the table and I turned around and said, I'm gonna go out on the street and see if I can get some laughs out there. James, Charles, and Les, uh, did you know you had your Fraser Crane? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We, uh, and that tape that came to us, I remember we saw a lot of tape out of New York and that tape, I, I'll never forget, Kelsey's face appeared on screen before he said a word and we started laughing. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I get the same reaction today almost all the time. <laughs> no, it was immediate. But, but, but you know, this was, uh, was the show of my life. It was uh, it made all the all the difference in my life. It's the show of all of our lives, and I wasn't it on it. It is the show of all of our lives. Yeah. Oh, nice. It is. Yeah. It is. It is uh, the show. I mean, like, I am really don't want to start crying or something, and I'm not even drinking. <laughs> lying 
I am. <laughs> but it really, I mean, I'm so grateful that I got to participate in this show for all that time. And it always felt every single day with Jimmy and Glenn and Les and all of you guys, it always felt like we were in camp more than we were in a TV show. And it just felt so natural mm -hmm. for, you know, natural friendships. Nothing ever felt forced that that writing was so perfect. You never felt like you had to be forced. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I will, I am forever grateful for having those six years. And you were also nice to me too. Ted, you were nice to me. You could have been a dick. You know, I mean, you're the lead. You were in a hit show. You could have just been a dick. You could have all been dicks. And nobody, everyone was just so kind to me. And I just thank you. I, when I, people always ask me, what was it like? Because I came in in year five, after year five, I think. And I said, I just can't believe anybody could be so, that everybody could be so nice to me. No one was snobby and no one was heady and, you know, no one was, so thanks. Percy, when you, um, when you came into the show, I mean, we were talking about first impressions. Um, I didn't realize you were just a dramatic actress. I thought you were one of the funniest people I'd ever seen. Yeah. I mean, I, you just made me giggle all the time. I mean, you did that thing, sweet baby, and then when you were punching people, <laughs> but I, mean, I thought, God, she's remarkable. I mean, you know, like all of a sudden you just like cold cock somebody. I thought, this girl's insane. She was wonderful. <laughs> That whole thing you used to think about, you. Bye -bye. You know, the whole L.A. bye-bye thing. Oh, I just giggled my ass off. You just made me laugh. Didn't we have the, thank you. Didn't we all have the best time of our lives? Uh, yeah. yeah. While we're on the subject of Kirsty, that last episode, you were, you were on a woman on the verge of total insanity that was so delicious to watch. It really was an amazing, amazing performance. Thank you. Yeah. Real Parliament. You're the best we, leading man, and you're like the best kisser. I didn't, you know, people uh, always, hey, ask, you know hey, how we all get asked questions about who was the good kisser and stuff? <laughs> you are a good kisser. Well, Woody, thank I never you. got to kiss you. I never got to kiss you other guys. I mean, on set, we were always making out off set, but I, <laughs> Dad, you're like, a, you're like a really nah. good kisser. I'm just saying. Is there anyone much. here who hasn't? Is there anyone here who hasn't kissed Ted? <laughs> I don't know. Raise your hand if oh, you have it. Wait, Rhea, you cannot raise your hand. We kiss. Yes, we, we did. had that great scene. Oh my God! My yeah. Favorite episode. Yeah. <laughs> and we danced and we kissed on the same yes. episode. Yeah. Oh, danced and Lord. kissed. Huh? Dance and kissed. Yeah. As a cast, boy, did we dance. That was back before uh, cell phones where people would take sh pictures of you. Every rap, par every rap party, Lord, did we dance. Remember? Oh, all of that us? was so fun. And then all uh, the kids would come. You were great at parties. Let me, let me, let me sing Jimmy Burrow's uh, uh, praise here for a second. Because as a cast, we got crazier and looser and crazier and looser. And... There'd be times where we it'd be 20, 15 minutes late to uh, to rehearsal was on time. Half hour late, then that's a little iffy. And somebody makes a call. About 45 minutes in and Woody wasn't there, somebody came down with a note saying, oh, Woody's in Berlin because the wall's coming down and he didn't want to miss it. <laughs> and if I recall, that kind of pissed off John Ratzenberger, who then left 
to go harvest his apples up in uh, the Seattle area. No, there was a, a show that I was uh, directing, and uh, it was where's Woody? Where's Woody? Where's Woody? And then I got the note that Woody was surfing in Guam. (laughs) Let me, let me just finish this. There would be, there would be about four or five people like the craft service person would be holding a script during run through reading (laughs) for the actual run through and the new writers on the set. This was after lesson plan had taken more of a, backseat would turn to Jimmy and go, they're not saying our words. How do we know this is even going to work? And Jimmy, relax, relax. It'll be fine. It's funny. You were so good, Jimmy, at being in between two very um, creative camps, but also with tender egos, you know, and you were, you translated uh, the writers for the actors and the actors for the writers in such a way that it was I, I thought it was just the best creative experience I've ever had because of because of you. And by the way, sorry, I love you so much, Jimmy. Oh my so, god, you are so sweet. Uh, ah. uh, it, it was, you know, in the beginning we rehearsed a lot more. You you guys were more regimented. You showed up on time, all that stuff. But after a while, after a while. It was not, the writers knew who you were. The writer knew the character. If you said the joke and the joke didn't work, it was never blamed on the actor. It was always the writers went and rewrote the joke because you all were so brilliant that way. And then it was my job, and I love doing my job, but but it was my job to make sure you guys had fun because doing a show for 11 years can be boring, you know? So it was about, you know, having fun on the set, allowing you guys to chase one another around the set, you know, people getting upset. And I said, just let them be. They'll be there on Tuesday night. They'll be there for the run through. So that was, that was my goal. And to have actors of extraordinary ability to do a joke, to land a joke, to play the emotion and to be able to find people to come in like when Nikki passed away to get Woody was extraordinary to have BB come in and become a regular to have Kirsty come in Kels. I mean, we were so blessed. It was just, it, you know, as I think about it, it's uh, an extraordinary experience and I can't believe it happened almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Agreed. That's hard to believe. I do remember when I received the pilot script, uh, because Glenless and I were already partners. So I, I knew I was going to direct it. When I received the script, they wrote solely, they wrote the script. I called the boys and I said, you've brought radio back to television because it was all about the words. We brought the people in, they sat down in the bar and they talked. And it was all about the words, which is the most important thing. And Glenn and Les, they wrote a great script and they wrote great scripts They shaped the show and it was just amazing, an amazing experience. About the writing, I remember there was a joke, um, Johnny, you said uh, something about a Freudian slip. And Johnny, you go, "Uh, that's when you're thinking about one thing, but you say a mother. And (laughs) 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 And I remember, Jimmy, you said that that's an 11 year setup for that. Georgie, sure. I, I remember I remember the the I think the longest pause uh, we had yes. to take as yes. as actors 
was like a 10 minute audience <laughs> laugh when you raised your arms mm, or right. someone set it up. Somebody set it up, but you had been sweating. Yeah. <laughs> was I what was I something? Yeah. Uh, I remember, I, yeah. I do remember it was a it was a big wardrobe issue. I think we tested it like every day for a week. It was nuts. You know, oil, like cookie, cookie, cookie. You know, like a can of three in one, they're spraying under my arm. <laughs> but literally, I think it was like a 10-minute laugh. It just stopped everything. I think that was our biggest laugh. That, and I loved walking around with the, why did we all have shoes that we were supposed to be testing, and but we all had those squeaker clickers? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Somebody was a shoe Cliff salesman. Cliff was selling shoes. Oh, yeah. Cliff. That was a mail order. Cliff, yeah. Cliff, had a Cliff was selling mail order shoes. <laughs> and I had the, because that was, that was actually the first show I directed. Thank you, Jimmy. Um, and I had the, uh, the, the prop guy cut open squeaky dolls so that each actor could have a squeaker in their hand instead of doing it post. So you yeah. had different octaves and different rhythms. <laughs> and, uh, but that was, that was a funny show. Hey, one other silly, one other silly thing. Uh, I think this was probably Woody leading the way on this, but because it was a bar, we all had those little short bar straws and we had little napkins, oh. bar napkins. <laughs> And we'd make these little spitballs and and straws. And what would happen during rehearsal, if we watched another actor have this kind of long, maybe complicated speech, and they kind of muffed it a couple of times, we'd all get this gleam in our eyes and we'll go, we'll be there for you on the night. Don't worry, we'll be there. And then on the night, because it was a big enough set over on this side where George and John were, they'd be doing something. But us over here could be behind a pillar going, and literally, I swear, there are scenes where I can see little spitballs in George's hairline. Yeah. I must find you attack. I got you right on the uvula. Yeah. <laughs> I could see it. It was a thing of beauty. Just like, <laughs> yeah, I've been standing next to them and John and George usually at the bar and I would go, oh, incoming, incoming. I <laughs> I remember oh, I Nikki Colasanto, the coach, um, at one point telling us all around, because we'd rehearse, run lines, and have dinner or something before the show. And so that we'd always be a group, or we'd run lines sometime during the day. And I remember him saying, this show is, I don't know his exact words, but this show is going to, you know, will go forever he said, like, leave everything on the table. Make sure you talk, you know, don't don't harbor anything because this show will go as long as you all remain friends is in essence what he was saying. And he was such a kind of leader of uh, all of us. Um, we had so much respect for him. And he was he was the heart of Cheers character, you know, wise in the beginning. He you always went to him for the heart uh, anyway. So we all miss him. And I, just a quick story. No, whatever. Quick story. But remember the last, I think one of the last episodes Nikki did, and we didn't realize that he was having, or maybe 
Some people did, but didn't, it was having heart issues. So he wasn't getting enough blood to his brain. And he would write notes of every, he write, wrote every line on every napkin, every door, every anything so that he could remember lines. And, um, and he wrote uh, one of the last episodes he was in, a friend of his died. And what, I think the line was something like, it's almost like he's still with us today or something like that. You remember that? And we, Yvonne Scarpigioni. And what was the exact quote? Do you remember it? It's almost uh, like it's, he's it's here like with us Yvonne's now. Still here with us now, or something. Yeah. Yeah, and he wrote it on the outside of the uh, stage as he, you know, you enter the chair's doors right before you enter. He wrote it down so he wouldn't forget it. And we didn't know anything about this. And then the the, the he he, uh, he wasn't in the last few episodes of that season, and then he passed away. And then we came back, and we we all, as a cast, used to be at the top of the outdoor stairs and come down through the doors to introduce ourselves to the audience. And one of us noticed that there was Nick's. It's almost like he's here with us now, and it was like. <laughs> We like sobbed and it was like, it became this touchstone. Remember, we'd all touch it on the way out yeah. the door. And then <laughs> some, somebody like three or four seasons after that thought that they should paint the set and painted it out. And it was almost like a rebellion on the set. We almost didn't go out because somebody had painted our little touchstone away. No, I, I asked Nikki, I said, how do you do it, Nick? Because as we all know, he was... 180 degrees from his character in real life. And, uh, you know, very, very well-respected director, uh, teacher, etc., uh, etc. Et and he looked at me and he goes, rats, as soon as I step out of the car, I become a 12-year-old. <laughs> and that's it. That's, that was his character. I have one final question. This comes from Mike Shore from The Office and Parks and Recreation in Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Place. He says, for several decades, Cheers has been the gold standard by which all other TV, sh TV comedies are judged. It's becoming very annoying. Will you please do a <laughs> terrible reunion special that ruins everyone's memories so people mm. stop unfavorably comparing all of us to you? Signed, every comedy showrunner in Hollywood. <laughs> hey, I think well, we I actually, didn't we try to talk the writers in you guys when, uh, Kelsey, when you were... Um, we did a I think when you were going to stop doing Frasier, um, we thought that what what if we reboot Cheers, but you come back into the bar going, hey, what's been happening? <laughs> All right, what's uh, and just pick up from you walking in from and they said no. No. Yeah, I was I was always lobbying for a Christmas special. Every time I saw Warren Littlefield or whoever happened to be president of NBC. Say, hey, I'm gonna have a Christmas special, you know. We can meet in Bermuda in August and do a show. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. They always run away from me every time they saw me walking up down the hallway. Uh, let me just say one last thing. I think we're all uh have whatever careers we have because of you three men. Uh thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And it's so sweet to see you all. Yeah, I love you guys. Love you so much. We love you, Teddy. Love you, Teddy. We love, love you all. Love you all. Love you all. Thank you for showing up. Wow. Sometimes you want to go where everyone
Everybody knows your name. Again, that was from Ted Danson and his friends from work, uh, a live streaming show we did at House Seats Live back in 2020. Um, created by me, my wife, Julie, and our friend Mark Evan Jackson. Uh, thanks to both of them for such a great time doing that show. Um, finally, here is my conversation with Glenn Charles, Les Charles, and James Burroughs. Um, I, I finally pulled the trigger on this interview because I read James Burroughs' terrific book directed by James Burroughs, which if you are a fan of television and uh, if you are listening to this podcast, you are probably a fan of television. It is well worth picking up that book. Um, Burroughs just tells stories about, you know, directing episodes of television from the very beginning of his career, from the Mary Tyler Moore show and Taxi through Cheers, Will and Grace. It's it's really an incredible history of the past 60 years of television from someone who made that history. Um. So I, after reading that book, I, I reached out to the guys and asked them to have a conversation about the creation of Cheers, running the show, writing the show, directing the show, what it was like being in television in the early 80s to the early 90s. Um, and granted, I am asking them to remember things from 50 years ago. Uh, and they, they do the best they can with that. And, you know, some of these stories are, I'm sure, stories they've told before. But ultimately, I think we all had a really good time. We had a great conversation. Um, I think we got some good stuff out of it. I got a lovely note afterwards um, from Les Charles saying that he had fun. So that's that's all I'm looking for. Like, that is the greatest praise I could have asked for. Um, but there's some really cool and interesting stuff in here about what it was like to make this show that it was so important to television in so many ways and always was of such a high quality. I mean, it's kind of unbelievable. And I think I, I talk about this in the interview, but my wife and I watched all of the episodes starting in 2019 and then through about 2020, 2021. And, you know, we just watch an episode or two before going to bed. So we saw in a way that they couldn't have known at the time because they were so busy making it the high bar that this show hit every single week. The show never dipped in quality, and that's kind of incredible for, you know, a show that went for 11 years. The writing was always just right on. It was just top-notch. You know, the characters were so well-formed, so well-thought and created, and then brought to life by this unbelievable cast. Um, so I hope you enjoy this interview uh, as much as I enjoyed doing it. Uh, it was really a treat to talk to these absolute heroes of mine. If you are someone who is out there writing a pilot, you could do a lot worse than to watch the Cheers pilot. It is, as Tina Fey said in the earlier clip, generally regarded as the greatest television pilot of all time. And there's good reason for that. I'm going to write about it over on the newsletter this week, benblacker.substack.com. Check it out there. Um, but in the meantime, thank you for listening to this special episode. It sure felt special to me. Um, and so I, I thank you for your indulgence on this. Before I even play the full interview, I want to play for you a demo version of the Cheers theme, which I think we can all agree is maybe the greatest television theme song of all time. Um, but this is a demo version by 
Gary Portnoy, who co-wrote the theme with Judy Hart Angelo. Um, Gary was in touch with us when we did the the Ted Danson show uh, and was so lovely and gave us, uh, I think, an, an, a different version of the theme that he wanted us to play or he would allow us to play. And then NBC got kind of cold feet about it. So we wound up not playing it. But um, enormous thanks to Gary for that. So here's the uh, demo version of the Cheers theme followed by my interview with the creators of Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode. I I truly appreciate it. And I hope you have as much fun listening to it as I had recording it, which seems impossible, but still. Thanks again. Singing the blues when the Red Sox lose. It's a crisis in your life. On the run, cause all your girlfriends wanna be your wife. And the laundry tickets in the wash. All those nights when you've got no lights, the check is in the mail. And your little angel hung the cat up by its tail. And your third fiance didn't show. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name And they're always glad you came You want to be where you can see Our troubles are all the same You want to go where everybody knows your name Roll out of bed, Mr. Coffee's dead the morning's looking bright And your shrink ran off to Europe And didn't even ride And your husband wants to be a girl Be glad there's one place in the world Where everybody knows your name And they're always glad you came You wanna be where you can see Troubles are all the same You wanna be where everybody knows your name You wanna go where people know People are all the same You wanna go where everybody knows your What I'm going to do to start is to ask you to say hello on the microphone so the listener knows who you are and what you sound like so they know who's talking. Um, and what I'm going to do, I usually ask people to say the shows they've worked on, but everybody knows the shows that you all have worked on. Jimmy, that would be 40 minutes for Jimmy. So. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm going to do is ask you to introduce yourself and tell us, uh, is there a Cheers episode? that you remember particularly fondly. Uh, I'll let you rack your brains for a moment. And and Jimmy, let's start with you on this. Uh, I'm Jim Burrows, and I was uh, the director of most of the uh, Cheers shows. And uh, other than the end of the first year, which was uh, an incredible show between uh, the repartee between Sam and Diane was extraordinary. I think... Uh, the show that always stands out to me is Diane's Perfect Date, 
which is the introduction of the character Andy Andy. And uh, that show makes me laugh every time I see it. <laughs> that is a bizarre episode. And it's one I want to talk about, in fact. Uh, mm. But we'll get to it. Uh, Les, please introduce yourself. <clears throat> I'm Les Charles. And uh, I forgot what you needed from me. Oh, uh, my brother and I uh, wrote and produced Cheers and some other shows. And uh, I uh, I was sort of surprised that Jimmy came up with uh, Diane's Perfect Date because that's one of my favorites too. Of course, the, ver the first show, the end of the first season, I love a show called Blind Date. Or, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, what's the one we were just talking about? Uh, Dave Richards. Um, oh, 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 yeah. Um, anyway, that, that was a great episode where... Uh, uh, they were Sam and Diane were were uh, an item by that time in dating, and Dave comes in and says, "Let's go out on the town and get some get some women." And Sam just instinctively is heading out the door. <laughs> he's he's fine with that. And then of course he re Diane catches him and he has to cover. I, I that might be no not Diane. I'll think of that in the next forty minutes. <laughs> uh, Glenn. Glenn Charles, uh, I'm partners with Les in writing, creating the show, and Les and Jimmy. And um, favorite episode, you know, uh, I'll tell you the one that made me the happiest uh, to see that it worked was the first one. Because uh, we didn't know, you know, you don't know what an audience is going to think. And our, our initial audience, in-house audience, were uh, CBs. And because uh, we nobody had heard the show, you couldn't go pass out tickets in a mall. So we just had invited a bunch of CBs to come and watch. And they were a great audience. They got all the jokes. They'd never obviously never seen the show. They didn't know any of the characters, but they liked it and they laughed. And so I thought, you know, maybe we might get a second show out of this. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, 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 it, was, it was comforting. So that laughed. And I, and I, yeah, the the, the dying, blind date show is great. I love that too. And uh, <laughs> I'll tell you the show that so many people have commented to me about, and we thought it was a mistake at one point was the Thanksgiving show, and which we actually did a food fight. Oh, the food fight! And uh, I thought that I, this is embarrassing that we resort to this but some people loved it well it's funny i mean we're, we're sort of gonna jump around a little bit here but this was a question my my wife and i have been watching and re-watching these episodes for years now uh as as i think so many of us have and this was a question that came up just this week when we were watching she said the show feels so perfectly tuned that it feels like you you guys always knew how far you could push things what you could get away with was there, I'm curious about conversations that went on in the writer's room among the three of you, even on set about, are, are we pushing too far? And maybe this food fight is a good example of that. Oh, uh, yeah, of course there were times. Uh, and there were times that, that we, that we did, there was one instance where we did go too far. I remember we were doing a show. I don't remember which season, but we thought uh, it would be a, a Sam having, because this was in the news so much at the time, but maybe Sam has an AIDS, an AIDS scare. <clears throat> Cause he, you know, was ha having so many women and it just seemed natural. Um, 
So that was the where it started, and then it went to I don't remember exactly all all the steps, but he sees a minister for the first time in his adult life, and um, and I don't remember all the other consequences, but it just the whole premise of AIDS just killed all the comedy that came afterwards. So we had to back off, rewrite the script, and make it a, a pregnancy. A, a woman that he'd been dating said she. Uh, she was taking a pregnancy test, um, and it was kind of a, it was kind of cowardly in a way to back off from that, I guess. But uh, you know, it's a comedy show. <laughs> I remember the discussion in the writers' room when we were thinking, you know, AIDS is in the papers. Uh, it's obviously uh, an epidemic. We've got to comment on it. We have a we have a lead character who's a, a Lothario who. Uh, loves women and uh is single and uh this is uh can we comment on this we got to comment on this we, and and as les les said we we didn't like the show and i think we after we had done it um maybe early in, in the rehearsal we said you know would there be anything wrong with uh a half an hour on thursday night where you don't have to deal with some of the world's problems people can just look at something and laugh and we decided that's the way to go, that this will be, you know, they, if we're criticized for it, fine. But there were a lot of shows that were dealing with AIDS and, and for better or for worse. And uh, But I do remember we, from then on, we decided to back off of that. Yeah, it turned out to be a really funny show with, because, um, uh, you know, Rhea overhears, uh, Carla overhears Sam promising to God that if she's, it's not his baby, he will never... He will never date another woman. So, oh, I've forgotten that. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was it. And uh, I, I mean, when in when we rehearsed it that first day, we just the the minute somebody said AIDS, it was just back then. It was just it. You couldn't do a comedy about that at that point. I mean, I mean, even now, like it, it right. starts to suck the comedy out of the room, right? It adds this weight to it. Yeah, like the, it's like the word the word cancer is <laughs> does sort of the same thing. Casapol. No, ab you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's it's hard to dig your way out of that, right? Even even with the best of intentions going in, but it feels like I don't know this this. I'm gonna I want to talk about your your pre Cheers history a little bit and talk about like things you learned from these early experiences on on Mary Tyler Moore and MASH and Taxi, especially about calibrating the show, right? What can a show bear? How, how far can you bend it before it breaks? Well, I think from working on that other show and the atmosphere around those shows, we knew what kind of show we didn't want to do. <laughs> how so? You know, yeah, well, it was just... Uh, I mean, the MTM experience, I don't know for the boys, but for me, it was it was OK. But the taxi, the taxi doing taxi was was the, I, for me the hardest show I ever did because it was a cast that had interplanetary actors <laughs> on it. <laughs> and also a, a group of writers who were not always on the same page and were not always there the same day. So I know how difficult that was for the Charles brothers. So it was, it was, it was, it, for me, it was, it, it was the hardest show I ever did and, and taught me a lesson of what kind of show I didn't want to do. 
Patrick was also a very uh, was also a very dark show. It was in a it was set in a basement, and it was about a bunch of people who were uh, unhappy with what they were doing. Uh, and it, it was sort of uh, the an inferno, uh, Dante's inferno. It was just so lost souls in hell. Um, and it, it was funny, and it was a great show, a, fa a fantastic show. But I think we just wanted to go a different direction and have a place where people wanted to be and enjoyed being and had fun. And, uh, and for, therefore a bar. Yeah. <laughs> In a basement. <laughs> I do remember one, um, David Davis was one of the creators of the show, and I remember there was discussion early on in the process on Taxi. Should should we allow smoking? Because they, they have smoking in the garage, and uh, he fought it brilliantly, and I'm, I'm glad he did because the, the cigarette smoke in there would have contributed to the dreary atmosphere, and uh, even more so, even though it's it would be, have been real. But but yes, it's less the same. We we are, when we had a chance to do our own show, let's let's put it somewhere where everybody wants to be, including the audience. We hope. I'm not going to say the rest. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's so interesting, though, when I was looking back at, you know, what were the hit shows in 1982? And the sitcom atmosphere was really different to Cheers in flavor. I mean, I think the closest thing was was Newhart premiered that year, which had a similar sort of smart character driven comedy. But we're looking at things like Three's Company and then a bunch of sort of mid late seventies shows that were getting long in the tooth, like happy days and Laverne and Shirley and stuff like that. And cheers doesn't feel like th those shows. Was it, you know, you guys had a deal to write a script, get a pilot on the air, but was there some trepidation about, even though this was the show you wanted to write, does it fit in with the landscape Were these conversations that you had? My recollection is that the network was pretty wide open for, uh, for anything we wanted to do. And uh, they were number three. There was only three choices of things to watch in those days. And with that, we were number three. The, the NBC was uh, so they didn't have a lot of uh, latitude in telling us <laughs> you can't do that. And, but uh, but uh, I thought they were very cooperative. Brandon Tartikoff, uh, Grant Tinker, uh, big, big fans and helped us. And our, our ratings at first were abysmal. And uh, we got notes from them. Don't, don't let the ratings bother you. You're doing a great show. And that really helped. But uh, but you're right. The most a lot of very uh, comedy shows that uh, were on that were very very popular. And uh, we the, one of the things we were lucky about was that there was only three networks in those days, so everybody was watching. I, was it, was it Simon and Simon? Simon and Simon, the, Magnum PI, the detective show, and uh, so uh, we got killed by them, and because it was such a popular show. But then the summer reruns came along, and everybody had seen Simon and Simon, so we we kind of found our our pace uh, in the summer and people started watching and we actually won an emmy <laughs> first year just for the summer that's amazing i remember uh there was one guy at nbc who was head of promotions uh and uh here again i'm having trouble with his name and and i probably shouldn't shouldn't say it if i remember but he he had a lot of trouble with the show because he didn't think he could promote a show that was this that was this smart in fact, he criticized it for for doing Schopenhauer jokes. Enough Schopenhauer. <laughs> so we, uh, but he he was fortunately he he's the only person I remember expressing that viewpoint at NBC. But it was 
Am I remembering right? Yellow glasses? No, no, that was that was uh, he was at NBC. Yeah, no, it's Steve, Steve something, Steve Summers, Steve. Even Summers, yes. Wow. Yeah, where did that come from? Wow, good. Two, neur- two neurons connected there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean we had come off. We had come off a smart show. Taxi was a smart show. Was smart writers. They knew uh, when they made a deal with us. I think NBC was desperate uh, to get anybody to 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 have a heartbeat in the world of television. And so we we you know we made a deal with them, and uh, they knew we were, what kind of show we were going to do. We were not going to do a three's company. So, God love uh, Brandon Tartikoff, and and again Grant Tinker, who were our, you know we all worked at MTM, so he was he knew about smart shows. So that that was all helpful with doing Cheers. Was there as you went on? I mean, it's amazing to have these these cheerleaders in your corner um as you went on and and jimmy i'm thinking of you had this great quote in your book uh that was the the gary marshall quote about who execs are (laughs) uh it was it was a great quote about uh the execs are never the you know they're the people telling funny people how to be funny if they were funny people they would have been in the room (laughs) yeah i mean also if 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 a network knew what made great comedy they would have nothing but great comedies on the air so, uh, you know, you always have to, back in those days, they weren't as as virulent as they are now, the network. You know, I've gone on to do shows where the networks are just, they just want to homogenize the show to, for it to be something that they know. They, they're, very, they're very scared of doing something that they've never seen before. But I think on Cheers, we had, we had the, the two main people at NBC behind us, so we didn't hear from the underlings that much. It was interesting though, that we didn't have those great people there when we first went to work for NBC. It was a whole different administration. If you remember. Right, right. Except Mike, I think Michael Zinberg was there. Zinberg was there. Thank God. But we were so lucky that our first season that uh, Grant and Brandon came in and took over and that changed everything. Cause I remember we, with the uh, original administration, we had to sell cheers being Jimmy said they have to base it on something else. We had to go and say it's like the light beer commercials. I don't know if you, know if you remember those. <laughs> Less filling, more taste. And said, oh, that's great. We love those commercials. So don't make the show. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. I get it. <laughs> um, how did you I'm I'm curious to hear about, and I've I don't think I've ever heard you guys talk about how you started to put a writer's room together for this show? Were they people you knew? Were you taking, you know, submissions from agents and stuff in the way, you know, it very much is now? What kind of material did you respond to? Well, the, our writer's room was very small for the first three, four, five years. We kept it to usually around four or five people. And they were all people we'd worked with before. Five? Five people? And the people we got to write scripts were mostly friends from having worked with them on other shows. The only difference was Levine and Isaacs. We didn't we didn't know them, but they had been on MASH and we got a lot of great re- re- referrals and people said they were terrific. So uh, we brought them in, but otherwise it was friends of ours. And Writer's room has always, has, has always been a function of comedy, you know, that, that you, you have to see it run through. Everybody involved with the script goes and okay, where are we? What do we need to do? And uh, of course, we'd 
converse with the Jimmy, who I was directing, and uh, what is this? What is this like? And uh, but the writers, it was just fun because the, you spend at least half an hour talking about everything before you talk about the script, <laughs> everything and everyone. <laughs> two, two people that we got on the show that I sh that I should mention that we didn't know were the result of a spec script, which is very unusual in our case we got a we got a spec script from from two guys who were actually producing another television show they wanted to work on cheers so much they sent us a spec script and it was i think still the best spec script i ever read uh, that was uh peter casey and david lee oh definitely yeah we couldn't use it for one reason or another but we used the subplot almost lifted it right out of the script and used it so it was about uh uh Another postman on Cliff Root who was stealing mail. Something like that. I don't remember the details. Well, I don't even remember that. Was was their first script, was the first script they did um, when Fraser comes in and says Diane called out a name? Oh, that was that was the that was Cleese, wasn't it? Uh, no, Diane called out a name before, you remember? She Fraser Fraser came in and said Wanted to talk to Sam. Obviously, she called out Sam because Fraser was then with Diane. I thought that was a shame. Oh, oh, right. I'm confusing too. That's right. And then she, at the end, she pretends to say Fraser. Yeah. It's the right, wrong moment. That might have been. I, I don't really recall, but we were so lucky to get Peter and David. They, that was a blessing from on high. And then they went on to do, uh, do Fraser. And then, of course, they went on to. They went on to do Frasier, so, or yeah, Frasier. And then also in the writer's room, we had two what's termed a punch-up guys. One was Jerry Belson, who could make you laugh at any moment. Just was so funny. And some of the greatest jokes and cheers came out of his mouth. And David Lloyd. They were guys who came in for, would see one run through and then pitch these jokes that were just incredible. I think Jerry Belson may, be, uh, David was great too, but uh, Jerry Belson may be the funniest person I've ever met. <laughs> Just naturally funny. And uh, he had no barriers. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> and they're, sadly, they're both gone now. Um, it, it sounds like there was this incredible spirit of collaboration on the show um, from the writers, from you three and from the cast and, and you know, everyone involved that has to come from the top down you know did did you guys come into running this show directing this show with an with a an explicit mandate to yourselves to to make it collaborative was it based on you know experiences you'd had in the past or think things you learned in the past i think, I think we'd all met we'd all met um uh and, and worked with uh and that <laughs> i'm not a nice person <laughs> And we, I think we, we learned from that and uh, it, it, it didn't generate anything good. I don't think if there's resentment and um, okay, I'll do it, but I don't think it's right. So I think there was always a spirit. Anybody could say what they wanted to about the script and uh, nobody would jump on them and which is great. You know, you learn as much from that as you certainly do from anybody complaining. It just, we just, I think it was a, a, a result of having worked with people that weren't as uh, receptive uh, to uh, input. 
Yeah, it makes sense. Do you, do you guys remember instances? And I know, you know, like all of this memory lane stuff, it's, it's been a long time. So I'll, I'll stall while I need to. But do you remember instances where great ideas came from outside the room? Great ideas came from, you know, whether it was the actors, whether it was the assistants, whether it was a great director, uh, whether it was character stuff or, or even just business on stage, which I think Shears was so good at. I don't remember stories coming from any other any other part from cast or crew or or anyone. They, yeah, it's always moments. Right? Yes, definitely those. You're you'll be on. We'll we'd be on the stage and playing around, and come up, something would pop up. But stories, we got some stories from writers who came in. You you expect a, a writer is going to do a script. He'd come in with three or four ideas. Not those didn't work very often, but. We always had a bank of, of ideas for people too. We couldn't if they didn't have something, we would give them something. You know, and if you've been on the air long enough, you need you need a record keeper, or I can't remember what we used to call Heidi, but she kept a record of every show we'd ever done, every subject. And when you get to be in your eighth, ninth, tenth year, you somebody think, hey, well, how about if we uh, we did it season three? <laughs> That's important. Well, well, did it work? That's the <laughs> yeah, really who. If I forgot, maybe the audience. I, I, I don't remember it. How are they going to remember it? <laughs> you know, they the 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 cast was phenomenal. The cast was you had a cast. You didn't have to write away from anybody. anybody on that anybody on that show could do a joke, and um, most of the time, I think uh, uh, predominantly, uh, if the joke didn't work, it was the fault of the joke, not the actor, because. Those 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 guys were they were unbelievable. And when I would work with them uh, on stage, there were bits we would come up with. I can't recollect stuff like that, but it's nice when Glenn and Les would come down to see a run through to see something that surprised them. And, uh, you know, it only led to uh, making it more sophisticated and, and uh, honing a piece of business to make it even funnier. Yeah. And to Jim, to Jimmy's credit. One of one of his laws was with the cast was you got to let the producers, the writers see it, give it to, give it your best shot. So and they did that with material that they didn't have all that much faith in themselves. And then we would know whether whether or not it worked because they put their heart into it. And sometimes it would it would surprise them that it worked when they really <laughs> when they really uh, put, put all their energy into it. That 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 was a key element of our success. Is uh, Jimmy saying, "Let's just run it, run it. Let's run it. See what happens. Give it your best shot." Yeah. Well, you. I think you had the advantage, right? That you'd given them great material for, you know, you you'd proven that you're going to give them great material, uh, and so you've earned some trust there. Um, but Jimmy, I wanted to ask specifically about working with actors and bringing out the best in actors and helping them to discover stuff, but also, you know, letting them surprise you. Uh, an actor, you know, the, the, the medium that I'm in and the boys were in is, uh, is a writer's driven medium. They, they are executive producers that cast the show. They, they do the scenery, they do the editing and stuff like that. So it's a very strongly writer's driven medium. And, um, so when the scripts come down, you know how hard they worked on them. So 
I had to say, I, I said to the actors, let's do it. Let's do it as written. It's important. But if we found a problem or something like that, or we discovered something, I said, let's, let's explore this. And we would, and then we would show them the script as written. And then if we had an addition or a, add a joke, we would do it. And so what that, what that did was it made the actors feel like they were not necessarily parrots. They were uh, involved in the creative process. And if an actor feels that, he's going to work harder for you, come up with new bits. You know, they're not always great, but it just makes me look better and it makes the show look better. And uh, so that's, that's how I work with them. And luckily on that show, we had, you know, the six or seven or eight main, the main group was just an extraordinary group of actors. And good people too. They were nice people. We, we got very lucky in that. Yeah. Very, very, very lucky. And the, the guy at the top, the team leader, uh, Mr. Danson, was uh, first rate. Well, let's let's talk about him for a moment. Um, you know, I know you you guys have all talked about this before, but the part of Sam Malone was originally conceived for a different type in mind, I, I think. Uh, and and Ted kind of came in and surprised everyone. Do you want to talk about finding that character and then how you adjust? your expectations as you start to write towards the actor? I thought the only, you know, Glenn may have a different um, recollection. I thought the only real major change we made was he was supposed to be a football player and we made him a, a baseball player, but otherwise he was pretty close to our original concept, I think. Mm -hmm. But I think what we wanted was a little more Stanley Kowalski type so that uh, the uh, uppity Diane would have an even more difficult time getting close to somebody like that. Ted, Ted was not that, and uh, but he uh, he certainly played uh, somebody that she, Lothario, that she would uh, she would not uh, be attracted to in spite of herself, and uh, so that 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 worked out fine. And he's he's a, he's an excellent actor, and I think one of the things that Ted brought to the role is that he sometimes, this is really a, a kind of subterfuge, not sub, subterranean or whatever you want to call it. He actually sometimes, you got the feeling that he was just leading Diane on, pretending to be as flighty stupid as he was. As he was. And that, that, that was a great element. It was complicated, but it was great. And Teddy, you know, Teddy was, um, he was not a jock. I think I took him to his first baseball game. I did. I took with the Cardinals were in town and I knew the I knew um, the engineer for Jack Buck. So I took him to a Cardinals game and that was his first experience. But in the education of, of Teddy, I when we had Freddie Dreyer on the show, Fred was a football player and Fred was Sam alone. Fred was totally because he was he was a defensive end for the Rams, but he didn't have the skills in comedy. And I would say when Freddie was on the show, I would say to to Ted, watch him. Watch how he watch how he he's a peacock. He's a peacock. He's strutting. He's strutting around. You know, watch him. That's 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 who Sam Malone is. And uh, you know, uh, uh, watch him. Watch him. I I literally said to him, watch him grab his groin, which he you know which which Teddy did, and it really helped him. <laughs> is that where that came from? Yeah, that's where it came from. And. Uh, 
so uh, I think we said think of grabbing your groin. Yeah. <laughs> Before you say well, it. That's, like, that's why we made the bar so high because you couldn't. See. <laughs> Everybody wanted to be in the back. After a while, we were all grabbing our groins. <laughs> I wish I could get over it. <laughs> were there? I'm curious to hear about like some of the some of the tough parts of doing the show. I mean, first of all, like you talk to showrunners now who are responsible for doing eight or 10 episodes per season and they maybe go for two or three seasons. You guys are doing 25 episodes a year. 26. Yeah. Like this is. Who's <laughs> counting? <laughs> and I'll say again, you know, having watched the show so many times, so many episodes, there are no stinkers, you know, like the, the show is always hitting, you know, what were what were the hard parts for you guys? Norm entrances. <laughs> yeah. Or just pulling teeth. We go I th I think we threw one in in the very first episode, right? Where Norm comes in and they all and he has to come up with some little quip. And it worked great and then we did it two or three more and then it got so those were so hard to come up with. We were just sweat blood trying to come up with the damn Norm entrance. So after a while a lot of times we just say, have him sitting at the bar. We don't, <laughs> when the scene starts. <laughs> <laughs> He's already at the bar. <laughs> I remember, I remember in the pilot with the audience, with the CBs in the audience, not when we shot it, but the, one of the run-throughs. I remember George entered and, and uh, I think coach, or, I think coach said to him, what do you know? He said, not enough. And I, I think the boys wrote that. I don't think you thought that was a big joke. And the audience went crazy. And that, therefore, that's what started the normisms. And the interesting thing was that the, the people who had never seen this character before were laughing at the character. So that's, that's what cheers, the basis of cheers is character laughs. They were, they were extraordinary on that show. One of the jokes that I hear from people repeated to me, most often was a Norm entrance. Where, uh, how's it going, Norm? And he said, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world and I'm wearing milk bone underwear. <laughs> so as, as much trouble as they were, they paid off sometimes. They, how's the world treating you, Norm? Like that guy just ran over its dog. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, they work. Yeah, still. <laughs> it, you know, it's funny, you, you talk about for sure, the, these jokes are based in character. And even, you know, the plots move based on character. Um, you know, I, I do a bit of teaching and it's, listen, it's not going to surprise any of you to hear that we always talk about the Cheers pilot as a perfect pilot that introduces characters and introduces a world in such a perfect way. What advice do you have for writers who are writing pilots who need to write towards character how do you how do you steer people towards writing towards character in the case of the pilot we as with every pilot you have an assignment you're, you're trying to introduce a concept to people so you have to do that you have to introduce your cast you have to introduce your setting you have to kind of do scene and you have to tell a story i think a story is really important but if, uh, we've all seen so many pilots for shows this barrage of jokes and uh, you don't know the characters so the jokes aren't as funny uh, right. unless you know 
uh, it must help so much if the jokes are character driven. And uh, so I concentrated on a story. Okay, a bar. When a woman and her fiance come into a bar, he has to leave to go get her a ring. And uh, so she's left there. And in the process of her being left there, you, all these characters come in and she meets them. So, well, well, Diane, one of the central characters, meets all these characters. Our audience is meeting them all. And they're all coming in and you know who they are as soon as they have the interaction with the Diane and, and or Sam. And so that that I, I think that was a help. And if that, that that's important in a, in a pilot to introduce everybody concept. Don't worry about jokes unless they come, because uh, uh, you get tired of jokes that don't work and half joke. And nothing's quite as funny as uh, after you know, we get to know the characters look. For example, Norm. I think it helped in that, in the pilot too. Um, it was it, it sort of fell into place for us, but uh, it helped that that the characters, a lot of the characters, come into the bar with an attitude. They come in with a strong, like Carlos comes in really pissed off, and the coach comes in very upset. Right, I'm late. <laughs> coach comes in upset about the. About the the the, uh, the NFL draft, I guess is what it was, right? Linebacker, right? And so they don't. It's not just coming in and talking and how are you? There's you know a punch right away. I think that's a that's a big help in any in any script, right? Yeah, that's a great trick. Um, I want to let me ask you about a couple of these characters. Um, I mean, Coach is. Coach is a stunning character. He's a dumb guy in a way we've never seen a dumb guy. <laughs> Um, tell just tell me about that character a little bit. You know where it came from, uh, uh, and and then the casting of it. I'd love to hear about too. I think we based coach. Did we base coach on? Was it Sparky Anderson? I forgot what the inspiration. So there was some baseball manager that we had in mind, and uh, not not the brightest person in the world, but uh, sweet. And, but to well, it had to be baseball, and uh, um, that has affected his life, and, but. Nick Calasano was a very, very good actor. He did. Uh, he was in Raging Bull. A lot of people forget about that. He was not a nice guy in Raging Bull. He was a mean bird. And uh, he could make that switch to uh, to coach is uh, miraculous. Very, very funny. Well, he 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 led the league in getting hit in the head. Like right. bitches. <laughs> <laughs> that contributed to. <laughs> yeah. No, but but also the gold on that show was you never saw any of those people before. That was important, wasn't it? That was really important. I mean, the same with most of the shows I've done, uh uh Taxi and Cheers and uh, and Fraser and Friends and Will and Grace and those shows, you are introducing a whole new set of characters to an audience. They have no preconceived notions. They come to watch the show. They came to watch Cheers and they enjoyed these characters. So the audience feels like they have made these characters, these actors stars. So they're very proprietary about them. So that's to me what what uh, one makes a successful show. I mean, you have the Cosby show you, with, with Bill and when you cut the bill, you know he's going to be funny. But on on Cheers, when you cut to these people, you had no idea where the joke was coming from or what the joke was, or even if it was going to be funny until you got to know them. So that was uh, 
that was that was one of the great aspects of 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 those characters. You had never seen them before, and that was much better for us because we didn't have to deal with any huge egos at the time. They were actually right. the network. It's interesting because uh, you mentioned Cosby because he was available to us. Remember, right? He was under contract to uh, NBC, and uh, he was offered to us. And uh, we, where people said, oh, "You have a chance with Bill Cosby," but that would not have been the show we wanted to do. It was crazy. It was crazy. <laughs> as big a star as he was, but we were crazy at the time. I don't remember us. We, were we tempted? Uh, I don't remember. You guys, you guys told me about it. I mean, uh, but I don't think, uh, I don't think we were tempted. Do you remember we also read Sid Caesar for Coach? Oh God! Oh yeah. That was somebody. We were doing somebody a favor, right, Jimmy? You said uh, yes. <laughs> and that was one of the. Oh, that was one of the worst days, more mornings of my life. Because I was such a Sid Caesar fan. Oh, we all were. Oh, oh, I know. God. His agent, I think his agent called and said, can you just, I know he's not right for the part, but could you just meet with Sid, do me a favor? So we met with him and it was just a disaster. He came in and said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be at all the writing sessions. Yeah, I'll, I'll help you with the writing, of course. First, he sat there, he had a, like a foot long cigar. He sat it down on my ashtray on my desk and I'll help with the writing. <laughs> He wanted to turn the show. He wanted to make Coach, the, of course, the star of the show. It was, he didn't say change the name of the show, the Coach. <laughs> and also, uh, a little tidbit about Coach, we cast an actor before Nick's Call of Santo. Oh, yeah, we cast an actor named Robert Prosky, who eventually... No, we can't. We wanted him, and he said he didn't want to leave Washington. He was in the arena theater there. That's right. That's yeah. right. But he went on to do some other show, wasn't he... I think he was on Hill Street after Michael Thompson. Oh, right. I didn't know we cast him. I know he read. Oh, that's wild. I mean, it's it's this weird, you know, al alternate universe where Bill Cosby's behind the bar and Sid Caesar is coach. <laughs> right, Robert Prosky is behind the bar. Um, along those lines, like, you know, saying no to Bill Cosby, a huge star at the time, when Shelley left, I imagine there must have been a lot of pressure on you guys to fill that role maybe with a known quantity but also this show is a huge hit by now so i think it might have been a little easier to say trust us but tell me about that time and and the pressure that you were feeling if any oh god yeah oh we were under pressure right guys yeah well yeah we uh she was her, her choice her contract was up she let us know and uh, I remember, yeah, we, we there were certain uh, uh, TV columnists that wrote us off, said that's the end of Cheers when she walks out the door. And uh, we said, well, okay, that might be true, but uh, let's at least go down trying. So let's we don't, let's not try and duplicate uh, Diane Chambers. Let's uh, I think we we well I think we all agreed that we needed a woman to balance the, the cast, and but not a romance, and that's why we decided. Uh, Maybe somebody who has a um, equal status on the job as Sam, so there, there's that kind of conflict on the, on the, on the in the workplace. And uh, I can't remember was it whether it was you, Jimmy, that saw Kirsty and and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof at. Uh... Yeah, I mean Greenberg, Jeff Greenberg, our casting director, came in. And that was the first words out of his mouth. 
And I remember nobody quite knew. And I said, I'd seen her on stage in Hatton Hot Ten Roof. And she was gorgeous and sexy and uh, hilarious. Not a lot of, I did not. Yeah. Well, nobody knew about the hilarious. <laughs> well, no, we all we also we all agreed on the first of those strategies. We said, "Where's the funny?" Well, well she, you know, she doesn't have to be funny. She'll make. And uh, God, she was. I remember when uh, first week of rehearsals, uh, she was really nervous. And I, I was in the stands one day when somebody was rehearsing on stage. Kirsty was down there smoking and. She was so nervous. I mean, she was shaking. She was so nervous. I thought, wow, we got to use that. She was under more pressure than anybody, I think. Oh, oh, but she and she was great. I mean, good lord, she gave us another. She gave us another series. It it feels too like there's such a in in those first two years of of her being there, season six and seven, and honestly, even beyond, like there's such a discovery and like an uncovering of all of her talents, which is so much fun to see. She was a great drunk. <laughs> she is a great drunk. No, really, a, a very good drunk. She played. She played a great drunk. Well, actually, she was a great drunk too. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I meant. And she was great. She was a great cry. She could cry. Oh yeah, God. Oh my God, her tears would just make you, make you laugh. I, if. Oh yeah. Uh, wasn't the the first couple of rehearsals with her she didn't really work right she was too strident you remember that in in the run through she was we it was written such a martinet that she she wasn't getting any laughs and then didn't she try to go into her office door and she couldn't open, couldn't open the door and she got frustrated got flustered and all of us looked at one another and said oh my god that's the character Oh yeah, she got real flustered. She got yeah. flustered. Yeah, I remember we we were so concerned about comedy. And do you remember uh, she had she was just doing a movie with Carl Reiner? I just finished filming a movie with Carl Reiner, and he it was was it summer school? Maybe, but Carl Carl had us over and took us into the editing room and showed her on film there because the movie hadn't even been completely cut yet. So that we we could see it some comedy because she just had nothing. There was no comedy. Somehow or other, Jeff knew that she was funny uh, instinctively, I guess. But uh, thank God we listened to him and listened to Carl. Yeah. She came. She came. The first reading, she came dressed as Shelley Long. Yeah, she had a sense of humor, definitely. Yeah, I mean, she it, and and I think there's something about the way she sort of folded into that cast too, where it brought. A new life to a lot of the rhythms we'd grown accustomed to. Absolutely. What was it like in the writers' room, like figuring out this new character and how she interacts with the the existing characters? Do you remember? Well, the more the more we get to know her, got to know her, that the more we realized this is a really talented comedian, and uh, we can do things with her. Uh, I remember one thing that, about speaking, getting back to the drunkenness. Uh, uh, Bob Newhart went. To, well, he was a great drunk, true. Bob Newhart uh, playing it, and the he he told me one time. He said the, a lot of actors make mistakes when they're playing a drunk. They exaggerate the drunkenness, whereas a drunk fights very hard to be sober. <laughs> Overly sober. I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> that that makes all the difference in the world. And she she could do that. She we were uh, we were also lucky. Not only with Kersey, we were also lucky. You know, it was said that Nikki died, but we also had a fresh influx with Woody, which which you know changes the whole dynamic of a relationship with Sam. Now Sam has somebody who's younger than him and more virile and has to do that. We had that and we had BB who came along and you know we got we got very lucky when we uh, when we brought new people and Kelsey of course in year 3. So uh, it was just we 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 it was it was a great run. It was just we were very fortunate every one of those people did. Yeah. Fortunate and we had great casting people found them for. But at at a certain point it's it's not just luck, you know, it's it's the material and an eye for talent and knowing how to work with that talent and bring out what is great about them. You know, like don't, don't sell yourselves short on this. Oh, you're right. We're brilliant. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was all. <laughs> um, I want to ask about, uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, one before we start to wrap up is, um, I want to hear you all say some nice things about each other. Uh, I want to know, Jimmy, what is it about these guys and the way they write that, you know, that works? You know, what is it that you respond to as a collaborator with them? What is it that gets you excited about it? And and Glenn and Les, the same question. You know, what is what does Jimmy bring out in your material? Why is he the right guy to tackle your scripts? I, you know, I, I met the boys on, there were story editors on the Phyllis show. Boris Leachman. Yeah, Cloris Leachman, right. And uh, we didn't have that much interaction. Uh, I was too busy de dealing with Cloris. <laughs> who, who had nine ways of doing a joke, all were as funny, and it was it was just hard. <laughs> Full-time job. <laughs> and then we all, we all came together on Taxi. I was brought in as the director, and they were brought in as the producer, and we started to have to deal with the insanity on that show. And they were so, the boys were so even-tempered and um, funny in a quiet kind of way. And uh, uh, so we, 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 it turns out we all had the same agent and he said, you guys ought to do a show together. And I guess we, we all liked one another from our working relationship on Taxi and uh, uh, we talked about we talked about doing a show together, and they were gracious enough to uh, give me created by credit, which I am eternally grateful to them for. And uh, it just was we again we learned the only way to work is the kind way, and uh, we there was never any bitterness or anything like that from in all in all in all our relationships. We just were. Um, we were just uh, uh, simpatico. And I think as, as we've as we've all commented on before, another another key ingredient, and I I couldn't agree more with what Jimmy said, but I, another key ingredient is that we have the same sense of humor. We laugh at the same things, the three of us. So there was never any conflict about that, about what's funny. Uh, I, 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 just going to repeat, uh, no strong egos. Uh, and we're all willing to say, one of the two of us say that doesn't work. And we, okay, it doesn't work. Let's move on. Uh, no, but nobody ever stood firm with a joke that wasn't working or tried to make it work. Um, so uh, it, just, it was just a good, good relationship. And uh, right from the start, 
even before we knew we were going to work together, like as Jimmy was saying on Phyllis. Yeah, we kind of came along at the same time. We kind of grew up together. We were kids together at MTM. And uh, yeah, we have to add that Jimmy is a, is a director who understands, who understands writing. And that's a lot rarer than you might think in the, in the business. Somebody who knows, uh, knows how a script works and what's involved. And well, it gives everything a chance, which is important. I've never seen a man with, with greater patience. <laughs> Jimmy Burrow. I've never seen. And Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy's very good with, uh, uh temperamental actors. He's, and he did, we did have one on, uh, Comparatively speaking, uh, he knew how to handle this person. Uh, <laughs> well, well, let me ask you, Jimmy, what's the secret? How do you how do you work with temperamental actors? Uh, like like a good psychiatrist, I build them at the end of rehearsal. <laughs> no, I uh, you, I just let them say their piece, and uh, once I get it out, we can move on. And, uh, you know, you, there are ways to manipulate them to get them to do what they didn't want to do. It's just, it takes time. I had, I had a great leading man who was a big help with that too. And, um, you know, eventually they, they, they come around. Yeah. But the fish things from the head and, uh, <laughs> we didn't have a big stinking head at the top of that show. Before we wrap up, let me ask you. So, so you know, the show ran 275 episodes, uh, 11 years, bringing this thing into in for a landing. Well, it is still a show that people were watching. Like the numbers were still huge at the end of the run. I'm just curious to hear about like your feelings around that time and then the hoopla of the finale, which was... Listen, I, I come from Boston. I was in Boston at the time, and it was it was a scene there. <laughs> well, we we knew it was time. We we done we we done Cheers, and it was time to move on. So, obviously, very sad. But uh, I think uh, we we uh, we could have gone on. Uh, they were Ted didn't want to go on, but we could have gone on the show. We thought that was not not something we were interested in. But we told the story, our story, and the story of that bar, and uh, let's go home. And uh, so it was sad, but it was we knew it. We knew it was time. I don't think there was any doubt about that. That that hoopla, though, that you're talking about was overwhelming. I don't think any of us expected it to be as big as it was. Uh, it uh, kind of just uh, it was like an avalanche, really, that we were caught in <laughs> trying to. And the last show was very, very hard to write, <clears throat> extremely hard to write, as last shows, I think, always are. Because everybody expects it. They want it to be the best show ever. But, you know, you're trying to do the best show ever every week. It's, it's That's your intention all the time. <laughs> and they want it to be something, they want it to be something really grand and unusual. But at the same time, they want it to be a regular Cheers episode. They don't want it to be a distortion. But an hour and a half long? Uh, yeah, an hour and a half. Yeah, it was, it was. Yeah, we got talked into that, and we should never have done it. That, that was a mistake. Well, I, th I think the last show was good, and and with any last show on any show, 
any show you do, MASH, Seinfeld, everything like that, the audiences are pissed because you're taking away their security blanket. It's not going to be on anymore. You took it away from them. They're going to be critical. And uh, but there's, it was it was time to end the show. Ninety three million viewers for that finale. That is forty percent of the U.S. population at the time. Wow! How do you even wrap your head around that? No, you could. I don't think there's any way to. <laughs> it's not possible. Think about the millions of people. Did it? Does that kind of thing make you worry about? at the time, what you do next? <laughs> I think I, we were interested in resting. Uh, oh, God. Uh, it, was, it was a hectic, it was a very, very hectic week. We were on a lot of, you know, a lot of interviews and uh, that sort of thing. And uh, Never been more exhausted. The, I, think, I think the most important point, as we've said here, it was time. It was really time. Ted wanted to leave. And there was no way we were doing Cheers without Ted. That was... That, that was it's not going to happen, and uh, so, uh, and we 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 were no in no way uh, we had no interest in trying to talk him into it. Yeah, but and and listen, after a hell of a run, that like it's not like you're going out on a low note, you know. That absolutely makes sense. Is that I'm curious. I just read this quote. I I forget which of you said it, but there was some idea of, um, when you were casting, and we touched on this already, having no name. Uh, no known actors involved and but also not having the show named after someone you know was this the idea that it is about this place and you know in the back of your head does that mean that listen if someone doesn't work out in the first couple of years they can they can go but the show <laughs> remains well i don't know if it was uh, the quote is from me but i i somebody told me one time uh do not put the name of an actor or a character in the title because they they have you by the balls <laughs> if they want to like can move on don't 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 call it rhoda don't, <laughs> don't call it bill cosby show well roseanne somehow <laughs> somehow survived they carried on <laughs> um let me wrap up by asking you um the what television do you love right now is there stuff that you feel like, listen, listen, Cheers changed television comedy in a lot of ways. And it gave us this, all the stuff we talked about, this character-based comedy, this place where, you know, you want to hang out. Uh, is there stuff that you watch now or the past, you know, even 10 years that you feel like carries on that legacy? It's so much and people are doing People are doing shows before they're ready to do shows. They only have to do 10 shows. They... Oh, that's a big difference, the, the number of shows they have to do now. Yeah, they, they get they get hired before they're ready to do a show. I mean, we put in, uh, the boys and I put in uh, six or seven years of doing sitcoms before we, we did Cheers. And also, I, I like to say, when we were when we started Cheers, there were three networks and 30 great comedy writers. Now there are 500 networks and 30 great comedy writers. <laughs> so, you know, you have to, if you want to watch a good show, you have to ferret it out because there's so much. And uh, I, I, I watch, I, I watch uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, I think that makes me laugh. Uh, it's stuff I would have never thought of. I think he's, you know, 
he's done a wonderful job with that. And that's in comedy. And I want, you know, I watch Succession and uh, not too much else. I'm just going to say, I don't think that our style of uh, television comedy, I think it's uh, uh, not completely outmoded, but it's but comedy has changed pretty dramatically, I think, <laughs> going to break in, uh, in the last few years. And the, the, the style that we grew up on and, and learned and then did on Cheers is, is getting pretty scarce. Like, you know, Chuck, Chuck Laurie's still doing that kind of three camera story based comedy, but uh, a lot of it now has gone back to uh, one camera and some, and almost a different, a different style of humor. It's uh, let's joke oriented and kind of uh, it's, it's wry. A lot of it's wry. Uh, I, uh, Glenn turned me on to a show that I that I really like called Poker Face. That's terrific. Love her. Well, I, well, that's an interesting point because I, uh, I I'm I'm much more attracted to dramas now than uh, than uh, well, or semi comedies rather than strict comedy show. Don't, don't make me laugh that much anymore. Well, I think you know as as comedy writers too, and and Jimmy, you touched on this is we kind of want to be surprised or see that thing that we could never do. Um, let me let me wrap up with this. What was the stuff you all loved, uh, comedy or otherwise, as you know, young people, as kids, as you know, twenty somethings coming up? What was the stuff that you know you look to as influences on your work, your comedy, even the way you just see the world? From apparently how I look, it was the the talkies. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> now, for me, I was brought up. Uh, um, I was watching uh, I Love Lucy and the Dick Van Dyke show and my favorite, uh, uh, the Phil Silver show, which you never get rich. Is those, those, those are the shows I was brought up on. Honeymooners was a big influence on, on us and on a lot of, a lot of people. There's very few episodes of Honeymooners, but a lot of comedy writers can quote lines verbatim from those shows. And I have to say a, a, a huge influence, uh, on on me and i think on all of us is jack benny and the jack benny show even his radio show was fantastic comedy and we maligned said caesar enough today but i think great influence on um my appreciation of comedy that's caesar's hour and definitely um the show of shows that was that was i watched that religiously that was really great yeah i mean it's funny even just hearing these these influences all of it is in there you know all of it is in the stuff that we've seen from you uh synthesized through your own points of view and like that's that's what makes good that's what makes good tv saying we're plagiarists man is that what you're <laughs> <laughs> gentlemen thank you so much for chatting it's a pleasure to chat with you um thanks for cheers oh thank you yeah enjoy talking to you thank you thank you thank you watching Thank mm -hmm. you.